G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. Really grateful for you, you taking the time to download and listen to this RBC podcast. And we don't really ask for anything in return. Well, not, not much. We'd be really grateful if you could just uh, pop to the Apple podcast or iTunes and uh, and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. Um, there might be other reviews available, but we'll, we'll let you just give those to, to other podcasts. Um, sadly, I've got no podcast to, uh, sorry, got no reviews uh, to, uh, to, to read out today. Um, um, but uh, hopefully next week. I'll get into. I suppose sorry, we didn't have a, a podcast last week. I'd like to say that we we're sunning ourselves in Tahiti or something like that, but actually, it just the clinics were uh, were were a bit busy. But anyway, if you could uh, if you could write us a, a, a review, that would really help our metrics um, and do the things behind uh, iTunes or at least allow uh, this information to be delivered more effectively to to the people that actually want to want to listen to us and find us. Um, so really appreciate your time if you could spend a couple of minutes and write us a review. Today we're very fortunate to talk to, talk to Dr. Tom Cardi. Um, hi, Tom. Hello. Um, and uh, and what we're going to talk about is really the the, uh, the changing landscape of uh, of canine idiopathic epilepsy. So thank you, Tom, for for coming to spending the time to uh, talk to us today. So I suppose there's a, a few things, <coughs> excuse me, that I'd like to uh, um, ask through it. But I know that you've got some things that you would actually like to like to say about that because uh, I suppose a lot of the anti-epileptic drugs that we have have been around for a, for a while, haven't they? Yep. So. I guess what we're going to talk about today is, as you say, we're going to cover some of the first-line therapies, uh, some of which have only been around for three years, some of which have been around since about the 1850s, uh, used in human medicine since since that time, and they haven't come on at all since then. Um, so we're going to try and discuss both spectrums of those sorts of medications. In addition, I'm going to try and cover some of the newer and broader perspectives that are coming out of the RVC um, concerning the treatment of canine idiopathic epilepsy. And I want to do that from the perspective of not only how it affects uh, the dogs themselves, but also how it affects the owners, the owner's perception of their dog's quality of life, and the poor vet that is going to probably have to spend multiple months or years looking after these animals. Uh, that, that's uh, that, that's great, and, and I spoke to uh, Dr. Stein, Neeson or Stein about a, a couple of things to do with uh, diabetic care, care, and 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 that was absolutely sort of brought up that not only the you know who's involved in this relationship that we have to remember it's not necessarily giving medications for the dog, but it's the owners that are doing that and how they perceive um, their pet's quality of life, their own quality of life if they need to go away on holiday and get someone to to medicate them, um, and also the 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 rules of uh, of you know how um if you are the, the local vet looking after these cases like how you know when do you need to step in how often do you need to monitor um and uh, and does that um obviously influence people's decision to to carry on and treat these guys mm-hmm. so where we're at at the at the moment uh, tom so if you if you uh, were were in a, in a in a first opinion sort of practice or general practice and uh, a, a what you presume is an idiopathic epileptic patient came in what would you what would you start them on so so i guess let's let's take one little step back which i think is important so the first thing first if if i was in first opinion practice and an epileptic dog came into my consult room it's potentially quite a scary proposition um epilepsy in dogs is a it's a pretty common 
presentation, I would be surprised if every first opinion vet in the country doesn't have at least one epileptic patient through their door each week. Um, so it's a relatively common neurological disorder in dogs. It has a wide spectrum of, of sort of clinical signs and consequences. Some of these dogs are having multiple seizures per week. Some are having cluster seizures per day. And that's distressing not only for the dog, but also for the owner themselves. As you touched on, and as we'll come back to, there are a very, very small number of effective first-line therapies. Uh, the only two first-line therapies that are licensed in this country are phenobarbital and imepetoin, or pexian. And there's also very limited uh, evidence, um, very sparse sort of literature on how these therapies should best be used. In addition to that, we have um, significant comorbidities and significant side effects associated with a large proportion of these therapies, which can put off both the vet and the owner from using them effectively. So as well as discussing the first-line therapies, I'm also going to talk about, about vets and how it's the vet's sort of responsibility to balance seizure control with the patient's quality of life and the owner's perception of that quality of life. Okay. So does that mean you might not start any uh, epileptic therapy? So let's, let's, let's start from the beginning, I guess. Uh, a dog comes in to your practice and the owner um, informs you that it's had an epileptic seizure. We teach our students and we teach our residents that the first thing to do is make an assessment of, is it a seizure? We need to make sure it's not other paroxysmal um, disorders such as narcolepsy, syncope, painful episode, a vestibular episode, some sort of weird breed-related movement disorder. Um, and actually, once you begin to take an effective history, focusing on the duration of the episode, the clinical signs that occur during that episode, and how the dog is behaving pre and post that episode, you can normally, in most cases, get some idea of it being a seizure. Do, do you get uh, some uh, video evidence as well? No, it's yeah. 2017 now, and I imagine that a lot of people are recording what seems to happen. Yeah. Does, that, does that help you? So the... The majority of people, apart from myself, so by the time I try and video something on my phone, it's gone. It's about two miles down the road. But the most majority of our, our owners are really, really good, and they do bring in um, video evidence of seizures. For me, personally, that video evidence is invaluable. Um, but there can be confusions, okay? Not every seizure looks the same. You can show 100 videos to 100 people and none of them will be in agreement about which of them are seizures or not. So you have to trust your judgment and build up um, a picture based on the video evidence, the signalment of the dog and the owner's history as to whether this is a seizure or not. And, and don't panic, it doesn't have to be completely right you don't have to be right every time but if you can begin to rule out some of those differentials for example syncope or vestibular episodes then actually you come quite quite a decent way down the road and uh, and do you would you think that uh, to prove that it has sort of idiopathic epilepsy that you need to tick all the boxes uh, and cross all the t's dot all the i's to make sure that nothing else or no stone is unturned that that's all it has yeah, so I guess, I guess the diagnosis of epilepsy is very much sort of a diagnosis of exclusion, with the exception of two or three breeds where there's um, genetic evidence, a, a genetic test to show that they have idiopathic epilepsy. The majority of it will be um, by excluding other conditions. Can, can I just ask, what, what are those two breeds? And this is commercially available tests. 
So it's the Legato Romagnolo. There's a miniature wide-haired Dachshund and there's a Belgian something or other. <laughs> I can't remember which is the third one. But yeah, Skip a key or something. Maybe. These tests, commercially available is too strong a word, but the gene associated with epilepsy has been identified. But from the perspective of the first opinion vet, it's very important to try and rule out other differentials. You want to be doing a decent general physical examination. You want to be doing um, a decent auscultation of the heart and chest to rule out cardiorespiratory differentials. Looking at those videos, as you say, is essential. And then also an absolute minimum database to rule out um, potential extracranial causes of seizures is also useful. A CBC, a biochem, a urinalysis and a bile acids is probably where I'd start. Yep, good. Good. And uh, and is that would, would you do that for every every patient if they've had one episode? Or is this a grey area? It's a leading would, question, yeah. Dom. <laughs> I would, yeah. Good. I would. Why not? It's um, it, providing finances aren't completely limited. The cost of generating that minimum database um, is reasonable, and the benefits it provides you are. are, are Manyfold. Yeah. That combined with a neurological exam and a decent video of one of the episodes, and, and you're mostly there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, like, if you if you work out the, um, the 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 minimum sort of information that you would like, so that as you as you said, like the CBC, biochem, uh, bile acids, and and urinalysis, then would you hold off treating and and say well maybe we need to see if this is actually uh, a problem if it's a is it a one-off or is it going to be something that we need to to okay. medicate or you discuss that with the owner at the time of what so so i'll quote i'll quote directly from the literature so the bmc classification uh, revised guidelines on diagnosing epilepsy which were published in 2015 and i'm doing this from memory so i apologize if these aren't perfect um, there are several sort of tiers um, of diagnostic investigation. Tier one is, as I said, you need to do a thorough neurological exam, and normally that dog should be um, interictally normal to have a diagnosis of idiopathic epilepsy. The dogs are typically between six months and six years of age. Sometimes they can be a breed which is predisposed or, or, or associated with seizures, such as a Border Collie or a Labrador. We definitely need to do the minimum database, CBC, biochem, urinalysis, blood pressure. Um, and then I would definitely also add in sort of a bile acid stimulation test as well. Once you get to the end of those couple of tiers of, of, of diagnostics and you've excluded potential extracranial uh, causes of seizures, there's a high chance that, that your dog is an idiopathic epileptic. The only bits to add on on top of that are MRI and CSF. And then in the experimental setting, we also do EEG. But for you and I, the furthest we'll get is probably MRI and CSF. Well, why do they, um, why do you, you neurologists, I should, I should say, in the, in the veterinary field, not necessarily use EEG as much? Because it is very much used in, in people, isn't yeah. it, as, as far as monitoring and, so, and also treating? So the majority of the old systems, you needed a sedated or compliant animal. 
the setup is actually hugely complex, it's reasonably expensive and it's very difficult to interpret. Uh, there's now a lady called Fiona James in Canada which is beginning to develop more mobile um, and user-friendly systems and those we are beginning to utilise and Rowena and Holger have a grant to specifically look at the use of EEG um, in the diagnosis and management of seizures so I've no doubt that in coming years that's an area will expand. So I only interject just because I remember listening to uh, a, a, another podcast but a, a human neurologist saying you know that managing epileptic or managing seizuring patients without an EG is kind of you know what, what are you what are you trying to do and I just think that we're so we're you know with in in uh, um, I suppose our experience and or you know my uh, voyeuristic experience of of, of, of what happens I EG is used but just not not as much as uh, you know, or very infrequently. How no. about, how about that? It's a what we're doing at the minute. Our diagnosis of our dogs is based on a diagnosis of exclusion yeah. uh, and and maximising the probability that it's likely idiopathic epilepsy. And actually, getting that diagnosis is is actually only the start of your problems, because if you imagine uh, this dog has had one or two seizures, it's come into your practice you think you've achieved a diagnosis of idiopathic epilepsy. This dog may be two or three years old. It's likely to live until it's eight or nine or ten. You now have eight years as a veterinary surgeon and an owner of managing that epileptic patient. And so this is almost the point of today's um, talk and reason for being here is just to kind of highlight how difficult that is and some steps that can be taken to make it easier. And do you know, like, from speaking to, to <clears throat> vets in, in practice and I mean, your own experiences in practice as well, that people that just, you know, have a have a patient that might might be have idiopathic epilepsy or probably had more than one seizure, because hope, hopefully that um, people don't make necessarily rash decisions based on an isolated event, but say this is not for me, I, I can't deal with this. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 it's really common. Vets hate managing seizure patients because the treatment options are so limited and very often they feel that um, treatment is ineffective. So let's let's just summarise some of those those perspectives. So you asked me a question earlier about when I would start treatment. The BMC guidelines state that if a dog has had two or more seizures in a six-month period, you should certainly think about starting anti-epileptic treatment. Um, if a dog's seizures are increasing in frequency, severity, if there are severe post-ictal events or the dog is not returning to neurologically normal, start treating their seizures. But it will be done on a very, very case-by-case um, -case basis, which is almost, well, it is as dependent as on the owner as your wishes and the patient. I suppose it is very, like you have to imagine this, but they're incredibly frightening things to, uh, to to witness in patients and obviously, you know, and frightening even even for us to, to, to witness. So, so for, for uh, you know, the, the animal's owner, then, uh, and obviously they can be sort of quite distraught by looking at this and don't want these, these events to happen because they, they look very horrific, even though they might not necessarily yep. cause any potential issues to the patient as long as they're 
um, you know, not not protracted in yeah. in their length. So I guess this is one of the key points that we're going get, trying to change. Almost as important as starting that first line of therapy, which we'll come on to talk about, is actually at the very first point of diagnosis, providing owner support and information. The owner needs to be directed to epilepsy websites, whether it's the RVC, uh, whether it's one of the pharmaceutical companies, or actually there's a very nice canine epilepsy website, so that they can understand how seizures are managed, the effects they have on their animals, and actually what's going to happen in years to come. Because it's a big responsibility to take on an epileptic patient, these dogs are probably going to need initially monthly vet visits, at minimum three to six monthly vet visits. You're paying for daily medication, you're paying for additional blood tests, and so the, the financial and emotional burden of managing these animals is quite considerable. And that's even before you've started to think about treatment side effects and things like that. Absolutely. But then, then see, when you have that uh, that conversation, do you, do you think then it's wise to sort of talk about the different options or do you think that that's not necessarily as in the different medications you can yep. control? Yeah, so, so at, that, at that point. Absolutely. So the, the first moment of diagnosis, if you or even what I used to do is I would make the diagnosis. I would tell them that their animal had epilepsy and then my practice were very kind. They would book off a consult for them to come back and we'd have a 15 minute chat about um, seizure management and epilepsy as a disease. I understand that's not going to happen in every practice. So it is important to use um, paper or Internet resources but you have to have that conversation at some point about how the animal is going to be managed. And you started the conversation, which is the way that everyone starts the conversation about epilepsy. What are we going to treat this dog with? And we've traditionally very had a sort of very much had a sort of tunnel vision that we're going to plonk the dog on phenobarb, uh, phenobarbital or epiphen as it's called, or we're going to plonk the dog on pexin or imipitoin. And we're just going to focus on trying to minimise seizures. That's only one part of the story. Um, and I don't know if you want me to go on a bit about no, those two I, I medications. Do, do. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's cover these two medications. They're first-line therapies. Um, both of them work by um, increasing the amount of GABA inhibition in the brain. We know that phenobarbital is cheap. We know that it's very effective in a proportion of patients. We might see an excellent response in a third of patients. We might see a decent response in half or more, but there will be a third of patients that do not respond at all to this drug. So instantly that, uh, that's frustrating if you compare it to an opioid or an NSAID or a heart disease drug. Um, it's, it's frustrating that a third won't respond. Do we, do we know a little why they don't respond? or We do, Dom. We don't want to go into it here. Okay. <laughs> it's all about P-glycoproteins and MDR and drug metabolism and different binding sites. Okay. It's not today. <laughs> not today. Not unless we want to do a PhD in pharmacology. <laughs> but it's, it's important that the owner understands that they can be tipping this drug into their dog on a daily basis, twice daily, and it might have absolutely no effect, and that can almost be soul-destroying. And, so, and when would you make that decision that it's not having any effect? How, how, about, how about that? Yeah, so whether you're using Pexian or Phenobarbital, once the treatment has been started, and it's very important that it's done in a timely fashion, it's very important that the owner doses appropriately, so at 12-hour intervals and there's good compliance, and that the drug is dosed at an appropriate level, we very often hear of people starting at the sort of bottom end of the dose range. 
I guess we're a bit more gung-ho here in that we try and aim for the middle of the dose range and certainly make an assessment of a patient from that point. The length of time to understand if the treatment's being effective can vary because, as you can imagine, if your dog is only seizuring once a month and you're reducing seizures by 50%, it's going to be a couple of months before you know if it's working. If they're seizuring on a weekly basis, you have a very good idea of, of, of the impact. We always encourage them to keep a seizure diary and we always encourage them to use the RVC app uh, to record their animals' seizures. That's something that's accessible remotely by me and I can actually get a nice plot of these guys when they're seizuring at home. And, I, and, and when the owner arrives at my consult room, I'm kind of pre-prepared and can talk to them about their animals' history without having to um, go through sort of long discussions. Have you, have you uh, oh, I should actually know this, but I think that uh, people have started to look into the information from the app, right? Holger and yeah. et al. have started to look in how people use it. And I'm sure like with anything, like we, you know, we live in a, as we said, it's 2017 now and uh, we might be able to not use our phones as, as well as, as some people, but, uh, you know, they can get monitors, look at heart rate activity, et cetera, et cetera. So people are a bit more clued into yep. using this type of... Uh, yep, and they, 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 they find it a really helpful resource. It's almost like a, a support therapy. It has alarms on it to tell you when to prescribe the drugs. It alerts us as to when the animals had a seizure, and it also contains really good uh, emergency information on what to do if your dog has a seizure, and, and also about the disease progression of epilepsy. So I haven't used the app, but can the owners sort of share that information with their own veterinarian as well? As they can... I don't know if they can share it with their own vet. Um, I guess they can do a screenshot or show them the screen, but we can definitely share it with us. We will often get printouts of the sort of seizure graph before the animal comes in. It's pretty useful. But remember, we've still only talked about first-line therapies and we've still only talked about a diagnosis. Yeah. There is so much more to managing these patients than, the, than, than these simple steps. And this is what I worry about. Um, certainly when I was in first opinion practice, this was, this was all I focused on. Remember that a proportion of your animals, a proportion of your dogs, even though they're receiving effective treatment, will soon begin to have either breakthrough seizures or cluster seizures and additional medication may be needed. So, sorry, just about the terminology. So a breakthrough seizure is just a, a so, seizure that's happening when you're on these medications? Yeah, so even though your dosing strategy is great, they're on the right medication, the owner is completely compliant, these dogs can still be seizuring with a, a similar or increased frequency. And, and a cluster is two or more in a 24-hour period. Yeah, right? so absolutely right. A cluster seizure is defined as two or more seizures in a 24-hour period or two seizures where the dog does not return to being neurologically normal in between. And these are serious events. Any seizure is resulting in a brain which is undergoing ischemia, excitotoxicity, there's going to be necrosis of some of the neurons. So we want to minimise any sort of cluster seizures that are ongoing. So as well as either the phenobarb or the pexian, now we might have to add in levetiracetam or Keppra. And we use that in a pulsatile fashion and, and we can discuss that if you want. But already you've now got a... a, a dog whose disease has become more complex it's become more refractory and it's now on more medications and more medications will mean more side effects they will find um, 
dogs are becoming more sedate, um, they're becoming more ataxic, more reluctant to get to the food bowl and go for a walk. In addition, they can be sometimes be peeing around the house. Um, and now this almost becomes more of a problem than the seizures themselves. And so I know that, that as you said, the two sort of main first line um, antileptic drugs that we have, it's in this country, isn't it, that... Uh, um, that imipitoin exists as well as Australia, but it's, it's not in the States yet, is no. it? Um, and so, and so, uh, uh, so I suppose, has that, because it was, I believe some of the marketing was it has less of that um, neurological depressive uh, uh, effects, maybe depressive is the wrong word, and you'll, you'll correct me, but uh, um, less of, of those effects. Is that, does that swayed clients to maybe use a newer, newer product or...? Yeah, so Pexin or Imipitone is, a, is an interesting product. It works in a similar fashion to phenobarbital, but as you say, has less potential side effects and certainly has less liver toxicity. We have learned over the years to use Pexin in a very case-specific fashion um, to get the best out of it. So it is indicated as a first-line therapeutic for, for idiopathic epilepsy. I personally, and I say that this is my personal opinion, tend to be quite specific about the cases I use it in. So, for example, a two-year-old bright, healthy Labrador with no underlying comorbidities that's had maybe two or three seizures in a six-month period, no clusters, and the owner is fairly hesitant about using medication, then I will start on Pexian and I'll start at a decent dose of 20 milligrams per kilo and see what level of seizure control I can get. Conversely, if I have a young breed, for example, a collie dog, which is predisposed to cluster seizures and severe seizures and may have experienced cluster seizures and is currently seizuring multiple times a week, for me, based on my experience, Pexian might not be the right drug to use in that case and I will have to go for something, unfortunately, like phenobarbital, um, which offers a level of seizure control I want. It's been around since the 1850s for a reason. It it works well despite the side effects. Okay, so so you, and and so it's nor, normally sort of case and and client dependent because obviously dogs can be yeah. on phenobarbitone for a long period of time. They might have elevations in their liver enzymes, so they don't necessarily have significant impacts in their in their quality of life. Or would you would you would you disagree with that? And so actually, they well, all have issues. I think this is another area of. Um, it's another fa fascinating area of discussion. So we've always focused on the side effects of the medication. Polyuria, polydipsia, polyphagia, weight gain, uh, the potential elevation in liver enzymes, which, unless there's other signs of a hepatopathy, I wouldn't personally be that worried about. But some dogs indeed can um, have quite severe side effects from the medications. But there's another um, perhaps more interesting and, and more unknown set of events that's concurrently occurring in that seizures themselves can cause behavior changes in the dogs. We know now that um, seizures can cause um, ADHD-like behavior and also sort of autism spectrum disorder type behaviors in these animals. So for example, they can be more hyperexcitable, they can be more chaseable, they can show stranger directed fear. And, and so the disease itself is having effects on the dog and the dog's brain and behavior as well as the um, side effects of the medication and that's one area that owners they know about but it's never been explicitly stated and made 
um, sort of documented in print since until this time. So, so you're saying that maybe we don't need to or be concerned about the drugs themselves, but think actually that the seizure episodes themselves might have significant injury to the to the brain that we we don't necessarily. Uh, well, not necessarily able at the moment to quantify yeah. in in a way. So, so we have so every seizure is significant. Yeah, every seizure is significant, and every seizure or or every epileptic dog has the potential to experience quite significant behaviour changes um, to its personality and its daily functioning. And and when I talk about the initial diagnosis of epilepsy, as I said, most people leap to to treat. But we should be spending just as much time alerting these owners to the facts that these drugs will have side effects and they may see quite dramatic behaviours changes in their dogs as the years go by. Um, and it's all part of counselling them as to, to how best to manage these patients. And do, do, peop- do, do those changes themselves um, lead people to reconsider how they want to manage their dog or, or, uh, um, or whether they actually want to continue managing the dog? Yeah, so, so the, I mean, studies that Holger's done and studies that Rina has done has, have shown that once you start to be using two or three drugs, owners begin to find that a burden. A dog which is markedly ataxic or sedated, owners find that difficult to cope with. A dog which is not itself, i.e. It's, it's not responding to verbal commands around the house, it's, it's having changes in its daily routines and behaviours, those types of changes as a result of the epilepsy and the medications are more important to owners than the seizure episodes themselves. A seizure episode once or twice a month of a minute in duration traded off against a dog which they don't recognise in some cases as their own is, 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 you know, for them is very significant. Have you, have you ever actually recommended stopping uh, the, the anti-epileptic medication and, and sort of seeing how things go in, in any situation? No. I will never, and I think it's a real uh, word of caution, even if I have a dog that's on medication, is well controlled and hasn't had a seizure for 6 to 12 months, I will not stop medication, and I don't think many of my colleagues would either. Um, we simply don't understand enough about how that medication has altered the seizure threshold in that dog and as such withdrawing that medication, chopping and changing that medication, doing anything to destabilise that seizure threshold for me is something I will avoid like the plague if that dog is happy and stable. Because you know that even if we say we have a toxicity that we're that we're treating or, or managing together that we we put on phenobarbital and that we we uh, we we wean them off that over over a duration, don't we? Don't just uh, stop it after after it's it's reached therapeutic levels for a few days. Yeah, but that yeah. that is a very specific case. You're talking yeah. about uh, you know epilepsy that's been triggered either by a trauma um, or a toxin. Uh, it's got a defined entity that's caused it. There's not underlying structural brain disease um, and levels of excitability that mean the dog has to have treatment for its whole life. But even then, sorry, I was saying like there's caution with how oh, yeah, these yeah, drugs yeah, are, yeah. are used yeah. and, and, and managed, and that's yeah, that absolutely that's nothing to there's nothing like yeah. long term therapy or anything, anything like that. No, but you're right. I will always take a couple of months, four to four to eight weeks, to withdraw phenobarbital just to see i'm so cautious yeah
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, the, and these are specific, you know, you know, trauma or or toxin patients that that have uh, uh, seizures due due to that. Um, so, is is there anything more in the in the management that sort of changed um, with these with these uh, with these patients yeah. for for, the, for managing, I suppose, the whole as we said, the, the landscape of canine idiopathic yeah. epilepsy. So, so what more can we do? So there, there are a number of initiatives on the horizon, I think, that uh, are not going to... They're not going to be a paradigm shift, but they're certainly adding to the armoury of things that we um, use to treat epilepsy. So first of all, we've talked about owner education and owner support. We know that we have first-line medications uh, in terms of um, phenobarbital, imepitoin. We know that we have add-ons in terms of potassium bromide. We are, have an evidence base to suggest that things like levetiracetam, when used in a pulsatile fashion, is very, very, very effective at treating cluster seizures. So we have a decent-ish evidence base, almost, to show how to manage these things with pharmaceuticals. What Holger and Rowena and some people from Purina are now showing is that if we um, use a diet, and the diet they've developed is one called NeuroCare, which contains a, a proportion of medium-chain triglycerides, we can get even further additional benefit in those dogs already on medication in terms of their seizure control. Transfer to this diet, it can... Um, decrease the number of seizure days it can decrease the number of seizures per month and it's also been shown to have improvements in terms of the behavioral components of a dog with epilepsy um, now don't for a second think that this is panacea for for seizuring dogs it shouldn't be used as a, a monotherapy or um, exclusively but if you for example took a patient with heart disease these patients will take statins they will take exercise and they will modify their diet similarly in this setting we will have animals on medication we'll have an educated owner and they can be getting extra benefit which may allow them to take less anti-epileptic drug um, from a diet that's a, it's quite an interesting um uh, I'm sorry, I heard about I heard about this, and it is sort of very interesting. But I suppose it's more of the holistic thing that there's other things that we can improve on and tweak and modify that might actually might actually make a difference. And I suppose that we we need some time to work out like how much of a difference that yep. that would be, and and uh, and how significant that is. And I imagine that other you know food brands might get on the bandwagon, and and uh, and and that would be that would be great for a number of a number of patients as as well but that with that sort of holistic thing i mean you know how how far down the rabbit warren will they go i mean is it going to be a certain amount of exercise is it is it general you know diet way of life things that we need to think about uh, as as well or do you think there's any certain things that are going to make a difference probably not for me to say there are bigger brains than mine um working on it in terms of holger and rowena i guess the the one thing that i take from it as a a clinician is that the statistics behind the diet stand up and they're they're very robust and I also know from talking to vets in first opinion practice and owners that actually this concept of treating epilepsy almost as a, a life life disease you know similar mm. to, to heart disease diabetes in humans 
you know, depression, asthma, something which has to uh, encompass owner education, lifestyle changes and pharmacotherapy is actually a concept that they embrace and take on board and makes them much more focused on how they're, they're sort of trying to treat their animals. Yeah, but I mean, it's going to be that. Well, it's not going to be, but I imagine that there'll be other things that trickle down over yeah. when we have a bit more information about um, about pets. You know, if they're using maybe the, the RBC, uh, like epilepsy app, if they're finding out when people, you know, when animal seizure, what medications they're on, you know, what is their lifestyle, you know, whether they're more sedentary or go out yeah. to exercise, and maybe we'll get a bigger, a bit of better picture. And and um, some of that from other groups has started to filter through in terms of nutrient status, breed, seasonality, uh, location. There have been a lot of investigations into association um, of dogs with seizures. But for the time being, I guess I guess we can be not reassured, but there's certainly some encouraging signs that rather than just having to look down this tunnel of phenobarbital and, and then pexian perhaps, we're now starting to get other add-ons to our management of these um, cases, which not only allows us to give better seizure control, but also allows you to engage the owners in a more productive fashion too. Yeah, so yeah, I suppose if we've seen, you know, the rise of an, another anti-electric drug after, you know, 160 years, then uh, <laughs> maybe this is like a precipitous sort of uh, a fall of, of a number of different things in the uh, advancement of canine idiopathic epilepsy. We'll see, but there's there's a lot of effort into it now, so things are going to change. And is there is there anything else you'd like to uh, um, touch on for for uh, for this this topic, Dr. Carly? No, I would <laughs> like. There are, well, there are thousands of topics that we could talk about um, in, in terms of managing epilepsy, and I know people always want to hear about the specifics of how to use drugs. But for me, the take-home message of this session is don't just think about epilepsy in terms of drug management on a Tuesday and then sending them home and seeing them back in six weeks. Mm. Make sure you engage with the owners, educate the owners, and, and provide them with treatment and lifestyle options, recording their seizures and getting information about it on the RVC app, looking into the, the diet, which is going to be um, uh, introduced in this country next year, and trying to just pitch this idea to them that you are managing this dog for the rest of its life and there are strategies in place where we can help you with that. So, so that diet was introduced into North America, wasn't it, at the beginning of this year? And so it's coming yeah. here next year, do you know? And I suppose, like, globally after after that, I would yeah, imagine. that's or, or my not understanding at the same that time. it's coming next year. And do you know if Pexia is going to be released in, in North America? or? Uh, my understanding, and you would need to check with Holger again, is that trials have been submitted to the FDA, and I think it's under consideration. Fair enough, because this is quite a, a long time in the in the making, wasn't it? This has uh, been uh, been around for a while. Well, I suppose we, we should definitely wrap it up there. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Tom, for for coming along and spending some of your time again to uh, to talk to me about this. But I, I think we maybe we should approach some of the more uh, intricate parts of seizure control maybe a, a, a bit later. I was speaking to uh, uh, Joe about um, levetiracetam for, for a bit and specifics about that, but maybe it'd be good about how you how we monitor um, patients and, and just just maybe yeah, to, 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 to nail that as, as, as far as that. But, but thank you very much for, for spending the time. 
This was a bit more philosophical. It's worthwhile. Um, and thanks, thank you again for, for listening. And, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device. And that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. Again, if you could kindly leave us a, a review or a five-star review would be, be great. Um, and don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, uh, any any friends would be would be fine. We'll play some show notes in the RVC pages. So just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice and it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email me dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.